The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm a this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 13th. Today, a chaotic week for Brexit. The Spider-Man our critic has been waiting for, and Voyager 2 enters interstellar space. Theresa May wants you to know that she is listening. Whilst I'm grateful for that support, a significant number of colleagues did cast a vote against me, and I've listened to what they said. I'm grateful for the significant support I had from colleagues, but I've also heard loud and clear the concerns of those who didn't feel able to support me. I've listened very carefully to what has been said in this chamber and out of it. But not everybody believes her. She survived a no-confidence vote from her own party, which would have unseated her as prime minister. She's promised to step down before the next election, but she wants to deliver Brexit first. Apparently, it's hard to leave the European Union. Theresa May has been meeting with EU leaders in Brussels, trying to figure out a way to make the Brexit deal that she has more palatable to lawmakers back home. They're supposed to vote on it after the holidays. If they approve it, Brexit happens. If they don't approve it, well, then who knows? I think, Martine, the word you're looking for is shambolic. The Brits love this word. The root of shambolic is shambles. And if you put the words shambolic and Brexit together in one of your search engines, you will find about a billion hits. William Booth is London bureau chief for The Post. Tell me what has been happening over the last couple of days. Okay. First, on Monday, there was going to be a vote in the British Parliament over Theresa May's Brexit deal. And this was billed as the uh, like biggest, most important vote in a generation. Everyone got very wound up. It was finest hour time. It was cinematic. It was Churchillian. And then <laughs> Theresa May went before Parliament and just said, nah. Nah, nope, nope, not going to have this vote because we're going to lose. Because she she knew that she didn't have the support to be able to pass the deal that she'd already struck with folks in the EU. She didn't have anywhere near the support. She was going to go down in flames. And then she kind of survives half of Tuesday. And then Tuesday evening, a bunch of her own party submit these slightly sneaky little letters They submit at least 48 letters, which is 15% of the entire Conservative Party roster membership of the parliament. And then there's a no-confidence vote, which we saw happening on Wednesday. And this vote of no-confidence sounds like one of these benign things, like like it's not really, oh, no-confidence. It's not that big of a deal. But no-confidence basically means like we're going to chuck you out of office. It is a big thing. It is like words like impeachment. It is not a good thing. So she went from being the person who was about to push through this Brexit deal to almost being kicked out of office 
within the span of a couple of days. Yes, within the span of hours. She won, but she didn't win really so good. She won kind of, not great. It wasn't a great day for Theresa May. She survived to fight another day, but what isn't a happy day for her? So she's at least going to continue to be prime minister for the next year, correct? We think for another year, but there's all sorts of ways for her maybe to resign or something else bad to happen to her or some other leadership challenge, like in a more a bigger way where, where the opposition parties and everyone else pile on her and her government falls. But yes, she will continue on for the foreseeable future with this Brexit deal, which no one likes. Well, the fact that she survived this no-confidence vote, does that put her in a better or worse position to try to strike this deal in the next several months? Probably not. This deal is still um, super unpopular. She is going now. She's in Brussels now, and, and she went to European capitals, but in Brussels tonight, looking for more assurances and more concessions from the Europeans to make her deal slightly better that she could bring back. But I think she has, she's still going to have problems. But didn't she already do that? (laughs) Like, didn't she already go to Europe earlier this week to ask for more concessions or to see if if Europeans would budget all? Yes, Martine. She's done this like 11 times. (laughs) So, um, so she's gone back to seek a better deal And she will get a little bit better language, but she's not going to get like a mind-bendingly completely different deal. What is the big obstacle that is preventing an agreement between what Parliament wants and what the EU leaders are willing to give? Ireland. Ireland is the problem. Ireland had a bitter, terrible, horrible 30 years of sectarian civil war where they blew each other up and it was called the Troubles. And today there's an open border between Northern Ireland, which is a part of the United Kingdom, still a part of Britain, and the Republic of Ireland, which is in the South, which is a part of the EU, part of the European Union. And today there's no border. You can walk and drive across it and you won't even see it. But once Britain leaves the EU, which it's going to do, which it says it's going to do in March, then you kind of need a border or you need some new deal. And the sticking point here is what that new deal is to keep you from having a hard border where you have a guy with a clipboard or a scanner reader looking at your car or checking your your bags as you go through or passport control. I mean, that is what nobody wants. And that's the sticking point. So the last time we talked, we kind of used the metaphor of a divorce to describe Brexit. It seems like at this point, someone in the marriage has decided unilaterally that they're going to leave. And it feels like that's not how it works. That if you decide to leave, then you have to leave, but you, you either have to come up with some agreement with the other person or you have to sort of abandon the things that are the benefits of being in that partnership. Do people feel like Brexiteers are asking for too much in this situation? Yes, they do. The Europeans clearly think this. And in fact, they even have a term of art for it. Britain wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? So they refer to it as cakeism. <laughs> that the Brits want everything. They want to get out of the European Union, but they want to have everything be the same, right? So so they are bad spouses and bullies. They want to take off and have their own life, 
but they want to have all the goodies that they had before when they were in the marriage. And the Europeans keep telling them, no, 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 you, it doesn't work this way. You leave, you leave, and there's some cost to leaving. Thank you so much, Bill, and good luck with this. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy to talk to you. I grew up pretending to be Spider-Man a lot. David Betancourt is a writer and critic here at The Post. My full-time beat is covering comic book culture, from movies to television to streaming to animation. I cover it all. And he's been writing about a new animated movie that's coming to theaters this week, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's a movie that you would think David would be really excited about. I was raised by my father who loved Marvel Comics. He grew up reading them his whole life, and he shared that with me, and he passed it down to me, and he loved Marvel more than anything, and so did I. And Spider, when, when you love Marvel, Spider-Man is generally your favorite character off the top. You know, DC heroes were kind of known for being otherworldly. Superman was a super strong alien. Batman was a millionaire, now a billionaire. Spider-Man was a normal kid with normal problems. He was an orphan. He was raised by his aunt and uncle, worried about things like girls liking him and paying the bills and wondering what his next job was going to be. Admittedly, comic culture and superheroes are not really my thing. For context, I haven't watched a Spider-Man movie, I don't think, since... What was that guy's name? To- uh, Tobey Maguire? Yeah, Tobey Maguire. I wanted to talk to David about his take on the new movie, because he's been talking about it in a way that really resonated with me. He's been writing about what it feels like to see yourself finally represented in a book or on screen, and how thrilling and joyous that can be. And how the love you have for that thing can also put a lot of pressure on preserving its authenticity and protecting what makes it feel so special. All of this came up because a while back, Marvel created a new Spider-Man, a different iteration of the superhero that would premiere in a new line of comic books. And what year was this? Uh, This is around 2011. They showed the new suit, but they didn't say who was underneath it. And then, you know... There was this big media splash, and Marvel revealed that the character's name was Miles Morales, obviously a alliteration play on Peter Parker, you know, Peter Parker, Miles Morales. And they were very upfront in saying that Miles is half African-American, half Latino. His father's African-American, named Jefferson, and his mother, Rio, is uh, Puerto Rican. And what was your reaction to that announcement? I was floored, because that's what I am. Not the exact mix. My father is Puerto Rican, non-Afro. And my mother's African-American. My whole life, my identity and how people have identified me has been that I come from that cultural mix. And what they did with Miles is they literally took one of the most recognizable superhero costumes in the medium and they put a person of color underneath it. And that was a, it was a bold move. It was, you know, there was a lot of controversy behind it. Oh, Marvel's trying to get to PC. Oh, Marvel's just, you know, doing this for attention and for headlines. But then you had people like me who grew up their whole lives loving this culture, loving all these superheroes, but never seeing anyone that looked like me. If I wanted to see a character that looked like me coming from my biracial background, I couldn't. It didn't exist. Miles is the first person I could point to and say, this is literally someone in my neck of the woods. So every month I was at the comic shop. Did you immediately think like, oh, this is going to become a movie? Or were you just like, I'm going to just like sit here and enjoy these comics and not hope for anything more? It was definitely just I'm going to sit here and enjoy this little moment that I'm having where 
a kid that is basically me is Spider-Man. My name is Miles Morales. I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear of the Super Collider? You're gonna love this. Dimension opening now. Tell me about what it was like when you heard the announcement about the movie. Everyone was hyped. It was like, oh, wow, Miles is on the big screen. I was actually disappointed. And I was disappointed because we live in an era, this current era of superhero movies that I know a lot of people are sick of. I'm not because I love it. It's something I grew up loving my whole life and will continue to love and pass down to my kids. We're on like our 20th Marvel Studios movie right now. This is a huge era of live action entertainment. But when it finally comes time to announce Miles' movie, it's animated. And it, as state-of-the-art it is, and I've seen the movie, it looks great. I gave it a great review. It looks fantastic. It was kind of disappointing because I said, well, why can't Miles be live action? And I can look at it as someone that covers the industry and understand that it doesn't make business sense for Sony and Marvel Studios to bring in another kid. That would be controversial because people would be, oh, well, what about the Spider-Man I grew up with? You'd have all that. But still, it feels like by making... Miles Morales, an animated character, they're sidestepping, like, doing the work of actually turning a beloved character into a person of color. You know, that, especially, like, when you think about when folks were talking about Donald Glover maybe playing Spider-Man. And half the world was like, Donald for Spider-Man. We're only going to watch the next Spider-Man and Donald Glover's playing Peter Parker. And the other half was like, he's black, kill him! Like, he's so People had a conniption about the idea of this black actor playing what has historically been known as a white character. So by going animated, you bypass all that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and it also, it reminds me of when Lupita Nyong'o, you know, the actress from 12 Years a Slave, she won an Academy Award. She'd done this amazing job of being all over the fashion scene and the award show scene and had really become a star. And then immediately after that, she was cast in like several animated movies as voices. Jungle Book, Star Wars. Dear child, I see your eyes. You already know the truth. The belonging you seek is not behind you. It is ahead. Exactly. And I just felt like it was so disappointing of, you know, it's so powerful to see this person on screen as a real person. And like, why are we putting her in all of these animated movies where you're just getting a voice, but you're getting this kind of two-dimensional version of who this person is? And so I totally get you on being disappointed that seeing a Black Spider-Man was seeing an animated Black Spider-Man. I honestly think this is kind of a test, this whole animated thing. Like, hey, let's go animated, see how people respond to it. But doesn't that feel lame that, like, you yes, have it to does have feel this lame. Test? I'm upset. Don't, pl- please, I gave this movie a glowing review because it deserved it. But it feels like they're kind of playing it safe a little bit. What did you think about the movie? The movie was really good. It was so good that I can get over the fact that I still want to see him in live action. I kind of felt like I was watching myself all those years pretending to be Spider-Man a little bit. Also, when you're biracial, it's getting better now in television and movies, but... You don't usually see depictions of a biracial family and a kid and, you know, that is clearly of two worlds, seeing him with his parents. And the love his African-American father gave him and his mother, anyone who grew up in a Latino family has an abuela or tia that just will give you 8,000 kisses at like a mile a minute on your cheek. And, and that's in the movie, and, and it's great. You see a Puerto Rican flag somewhere, and he's saying hi to his friends in English, saying hi to his friends in Spanish. Yo, what's going on, bro? Hey, I'm just walking by. How you doing? 
It was emotional to watch that. I went in there very upset that I wasn't getting a live-action movie, and I walked out very impressed by what they had accomplished. And I've never been able to connect to a lead character like I was sitting there watching that animated version of Miles. What was your feeling walking out of the movie? <laughs> I, I actually, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans, we have this thing where we say, wepa. I walked out of the theater and I was like, yeah, wepa. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse opens on Friday. And now, one more thing. This week, NASA announced that Voyager 2 has left the sun's magnetic field. As you know, Voyager 2 has also crossed into interstellar space. It is often said that space is silent. But NASA scientists have found a way to listen by turning data into sound. Sarah Kaplan covers science for The Post. That is the sound of the solar wind, the stream of charged particles from the sun that suffuses our entire solar system. Ever since it left Earth 41 years ago, the Voyager 2 spacecraft has been accompanied by this soundtrack. But on November 5th, the sound suddenly stopped, and instead Voyager heard this. That is the sound of interstellar space, the void between the stars. Voyager 2 is only the second spacecraft in history to venture into this place. Its twin, Voyager 1, got there back in 2012. But Voyager 2 has a scientific leg up on its predecessor. That's because it still has a working plasma wave instrument. With this instrument, it can sense these other charged particles called galactic cosmic rays. Galactic cosmic rays are highly energetic particles moving close to the speed of light. If they ever reached astronauts or spacecraft, the consequences would be dire. But fortunately, most of these particles get deflected from our solar system by the sun's magnetic field. Scientists have to get beyond the sun's protective bubble if they want to study these rays. So that's what Voyager 2 did. With its plasma instrument and other tools, Voyager 2 will use these cosmic rays as galactic messengers, revealing clues about the stellar explosions that formed them. Both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are running out of time and fuel. Scientists think they'll only work for another 5 or 10 years. But their missions won't end then. Each spacecraft carries a copy of the Golden Record, a gold-plated copper disc inscribed with sounds and images meant to communicate what life is like on Earth. There are greetings from around the world. The sound of volcanoes. The crash of waves. Crickets and frogs. A dog barking. There's a sound of a mother kissing her child. Percussion from Senegal. A Peruvian wedding song. Oh, 
And the song Dark Was the Night by Blind Willie Johnson. As they drift through space to the next star and beyond, they will always bear this message, a postcard to whoever finds them from the world their creators call home. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review or tweet with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.